What's going on, podcasting world? Episode 147, coming at you and coming at you quick. Cole, what's up, man? Doing great. Yeah? Yeah. You all dressed up? You back in clinic? Yeah, yeah. No more working from home? I uh, still work from home some. Oh, cool. Do you yeah. dress up when you work at home? Um, Depends on if I have a meeting or not. Mm, just, the, just the top half? Yes, the top half. <laughs> Pajama pants in the bottom? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I need to find a, a work at home gig. That's gonna, nice. I'm gonna pro- I'm gonna propose that idea to Fetter. I don't think it's gonna go well. <laughs> I see my diabetes we'll, patients. We'll throw it out home. there. Oh yeah, of course. I got computers. Well, it's real. I mean, it's all kind of the same. I'm either working there or I'm working at home. The big difference for me is the commute. You know. Yeah. You just don't have to drive in, and you save so much time oh. in your day. I could. I'll. I'm just. You know. I'll work extra if I need to, but I'm just so happy to work extra because I save time on my commute. Heck yeah. You know what I mean. You're in a better mood. Yeah. You feel great. They talk about work life balance. There it is. Never heard of that before this. I have a great work life balance. <laughs> Mine, it's called mine, work on, is your life. Mine's on point like you can't imagine. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm working on it. We're actually going on vacation after 4th for like oh, nice. a couple of days, but still. Great. Actually getting on a plane and going to a plane. see us to Keys, Florida. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I hear it's kind of crazy to fly these days. Everybody's freaking out with their masks on. Oh, really? On, you know, I like there's, there's like, I don't know what it was, like eight times the amount of incidents like in flight of people oh, like good. arguing and getting angry. Nice. And most of it's like due to people being annoyed about masks or just getting stressed out, I guess. The key is if you're in the middle of an argument or an altercation of any kind on an airplane at this point, just start pretending to sneeze uncontrollably and go, <laughs> no, it's happening. And then I guarantee they're not going to want to fight you anymore. That's the way to de-escalate or <laughs> something like that. Or don't do that. Or don't do that at all. Um, but yeah, get your vaccinations. <laughs> So uh, today we are going to talk through community-acquired pneumonia, and we have touched on this when the guidelines first came out in 2019, but... It's almost two years ago. Haven't done it in a while, and so we're going to kind of go back through it, and then we'll use it as a little bit of a chance to review some just some basic stuff with antibiotics, too, because it's always good to refresh on some of the basics. Yeah, because, you know, nobody knows anything about antibiotics. Right, exactly. Well, they really don't. Really? <laughs> it all falls out of your brain very quickly, at least for me. It's like I look at this stuff... And I'm like, I remember committing this to memory, and somehow I've already forgotten. So everyone listening, I actually do believe in you. So I know Cole obviously doesn't now, but I, I can only I, speak from experience. <laughs> but before before we get started, I gotta again mention our sponsor, uh, Pearls, the great and wonderful drug info app that I'm becoming a big, huge fan of. Not just because they're our sponsor, but legitimately, we've we've held off on sponsors for so long until we could find something we actually liked. And I truly do like this app. It's awesome. You know, if you haven't checked it out download the free version for sure and uh kind of play around with it it's it's like uh it's like lexicon met an apple store that's the way yeah. i describe it. it's it's very it's got like a nice, nice pretty sleek charts. millennial look to it instead of that boring lexicon and uh yeah, it's definitely uh awesome and um if you go to the website which is pearls.com p-y-r-l-s pearls like clinical pearls get it Pearls.com slash core consult rx, uh, and then sign up for a free account, and uh, you can cancel it at any time. Uh, you will get access to 10 different diabetes charts. So, if you have not taken advantage of that, I encourage you to do it. Those charts are awesome. He did a fantastic job, and uh, yeah, they look really good. So, so if you guys uh, like the podcast, help support the people who support us. And uh, check it out. It's free. Like I said, no commitment whatsoever. We're not going to have any sneaky charges or anything. If they do, we'll, um, we'll Cole will pay you back. So, um, yeah, there you go. There's our plug. Thanks, Pearls. Uh, community-acquired pneumonia. Cole, where are we going to go first? Uh, well, I guess we're going to just start from the beginning because we're not talking specifically about the guideline. We'll, we'll talk about a couple of different takes because the new guideline is controversial in some ways, but um, we tend to agree with it. Um, but other people don't. So anyways, community acquired pneumonia, uh, pneumonia contracted outside of a healthcare facility, right? So we have, um, HAP health uh, hospital acquired pneumonia, also called nosocomial pneumonia, which we won't be talking about today. Um, and they have the old designation of healthcare associated pneumonia, which they don't really use anymore, which would be a pneumonia that's associated with a long-term care facility or some type of, um, interaction with a healthcare professional, um, which ha- used to have different uh, recommendations on what empiric therapy you started with and that sort of thing. But I think they were finding that they were probably overdoing it a little bit. So now um, 
it's basically ha- cap. Right, exactly. It's pretty much the same, but you know, there are there are factors associated with being having interactions with the healthcare system that might put you at an increased risk for something else or something. So we'll talk about some some um, scores that you can calculate to kind of determine how severe your patient may be. But outside, it's it's contracted outside of a healthcare facility. You'll often hear it called walking pneumonia. Um, Fever. Very, very misleading, too. Yeah, it, it is. Walking pneumonia assumes that everyone that has community acquired is just chilling hard. Right. Just hey, just taking a taking repose, and I'm going to get back to work in no time. I can remember my granddad saying he had walking pneumonia, and I had uh, to me, I was imagining a pneumonia walking. Mm-hmm. It just didn't make any sense at all. I understand where the colloquialism comes from. Colloquial, good Because word. you don't have to go into the hospital in some situations. It's it's it, can be a pneumonia that's treated completely outpatient. But if it's more severe, then you do need to go to the hospital. Yes. And I always pictured it like you were walking around and all of a sudden the pneumonia just hit you out of nowhere. You're like, oh no, <laughs> I got the pneumonia. I got the pneumonia. That's what I pictured when I was a kid when my mom used to say that. So I don't know why I thought, I don't know. It was like later in life, I just kind of forgot about it. And then all of a sudden I'm in like pharmacy school one day and I was like, oh, that's, oh, that's walking That's pneumonia. what that is. Oh shoot. It's, not, it's way different than what I thought it was. <laughs> So I was 23 when I found out that that's not what that was. Uh, I was probably much older. Uh, All right. But yeah, it's uh, so you're, you're going to see kind of nonspecific upper respiratory symptoms like fever, cough, maybe productive cough, um, chest pain, pleuritic chest pain. Um, yeah, so you kind of have to, there's some ways that we can determine whether we think it's pneumonia versus some other upper respiratory thing. One of these days we need to get uh, some of our PA uh, colleagues to come on here and actually discuss the difference between, you know, what they're looking for on the chest x-ray and kind of going into more of the diagnostic stuff. We won't we won't venture out into that because it's not our area, but um, chest x-ray, typically going to get a CBC with diff, CMP, um, looking at gas exchanges. Um, also, it's important to kind of decide whether or not we're going to culture both the sputum and the blood. And so the, the current 2019 guidelines basically say that if the patient is being treated in the outpatient setting, that cultures, whether it's sputum or blood, um, are not necessary. So basically we know the likely pathogens uh, in that particular setting. The patient's not uh, at a high risk for mortality, and so we're going to go ahead and give them empiric therapy, and then if that they don't improve, then we can kind of go from there, but in most cases they will. So no, uh, no recommendations for um, culturing in that case. Now, if the patient is hospitalized, then um, two things, you know, we have to look for. One, if they have severe CAP, which we'll talk about the criteria for that in a little bit, um, that is uh, kind of pushing you towards culturing before starting antibiotics because we're going to be using a little bit more of a, a you know intense antibiotic regimen, especially empirically, that we may need to de-escalate. And then um, we also consider patients who have had one of the following conditions. Either they are receiving empiric treatment for uh, MRSA or pseudomonas, um, previously had MRSA or pseudomonas infection, especially if it's been in the respiratory tract, and then uh, if the patients were hospitalized within the last 90 days and receive parenteral antibiotics for any reason, then that would be kind of a, a reason why any of those three would be a reason why we should probably go ahead and culture, um, whether it's sputum or blood uh, or both, and uh, make sure that uh, we are not colonizing uh, MRSA or pseudomonas. Um, very unlikely in in uh, caps, or I shouldn't say very unlikely, more rare than things like strep pneumo, but still can happen. So we want to make sure that we're covering for those if they if they do kind of come about. Yeah. And I think they've kind of determined that in most cases, if you culture and it's, you know, there's no significant issues going on, it's just a regular bug. And even if you kind of tailor treatment towards that, the outcomes aren't necessarily any different. So that's why in in many um, non-urgent cases, they won't. But it's important to know um, what bugs can cause pneumonia because it's important to know um, what drugs we can use to treat those. So um, by far the most common is going to be uh, streptococcus species of pneumonia. So strep pneumo um, is gram positive bacteria. Uh, you'll also commonly see some gram negatives like H flu, uh, MCAT, um, and then there's the concern for atypicals, which is where the um, new guidelines versus maybe the old way of treating um, get um, somewhat confusing and a little controversial. Um, but you've got Legionella, Mycoplasma, um, Chlamydophila, pneumonia would be examples of atypicals. And then, like Mike said, you've got the more severe bugs like MRSA, 
um, and pseudomonas would be uh, definitely considered more severe. But then, so this is all bacterial. You can also have a viral pneumonia. Um, and sussing, sussing out between the two is important to, to determine what, how you're going to treat. Um, you can have overlapping pneumonias of bacterial and viral. Um, so, yeah, it can, it can get a little tricky. Absolutely. And especially depending on, obviously, the locale of the patient. But, you know, we have to think things even like a, there, there could be situations where we have an endemic fungi like a histoplasmosis. So if they've had like recent travels to like certain like caves and things like that where that grows or um the uh i like the um what do you call it johns hopkins uh antibi you know biogram or yep. antibi antibiotic like uh suggestions if you like i don't know why just all got a sudden, nice little book all, like pocket book yeah all of a sudden not a pocket book but a book that fits in your pocket <laughs> all right it's off the rails now we've <laughs> cut so um tough. if only we edited we'd sound so much smarter um, but they say, uh, make sure that you check to see if the patient's been into the Ohio River regions. Apparently, histoplasmosis is common up there. Mm, I'm there all the time. Are you? Yeah, it's my so. favorite place to be. Is it? The Ohio River regions? <laughs> yeah. I, no. I feel like I've never heard you talk about that. I've not been to Ohio. Um, uh, yes, that's a lie. I've been to Cincinnati. But then, not the river regions, no, if yeah. you're wondering. No. Well, we were. <laughs> Good deal. Everybody cares. And uh, you mentioned um, the viruses as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Influenza and then COVID nineteen, obviously, you know, is becoming a big player in the pneumonia game, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, so we'll talk through mostly the the treatment for the bacterial pathogens. We, maybe we can touch on some uh, influenza treatments if we got time at the end. Uh, but when you're kind of, we're going to jump right to the the, the treatment part of things because that's what we do as pharmacists. And so. Um, when we're kind of thinking about this, the way I, I think about it in my head is, one, I want to decide, first and foremost, where I need to treat this patient, inpatient or outpatient. And so we can use something called the Pneumonia Severity Index, or the PSI, and it's basically just based on various risk factors, and you get uh, a points attributed for different risk factors. So, for example, the age of, uh, of a male patient is you get your points in the number of years you are old. So if somebody is uh, 65 years old, they right off the bat start with a nice 65 and they are well on their way to moving up the ranks. Um, women get a nice little 10-year uh, buffer. So theirs is the age in years minus 10. Um, nursing home resident, which used to be considered something different, um, that's actually just basically gives you 10 points now. Right, and so then, they might have called that HCAP before, but now they're just incorporating it into a risk factor for yeah. your index. Um, coexisting illnesses, so things like, you know, the, you get the most points for more severe illnesses like neoplastic disease. It's, you know, kind of an active malignancy. Um, a uh, chronic liver disease is 20 points. Heart failure, cerebrovascular disease, chronic renal disease, those are all 10 points. And, and this then, is like golf. More points bad. equals bad. Yes. Yeah. So physical examination, you know, respiratory, systolic blood pressure less than 90, temperature less than 35 degrees Celsius, so on and so forth. Laboratory findings, so um, arterial pH less than 7.35, so someone's kind of acidotic. Um, that's plus 30. Uh, blood urea nitrogen level or BUN of uh, greater than 30 mil milligrams per deciliter, it's going to be plus 20. Sodium less than 130 is going to be an extra 20 points. So you can rack these things up pretty quick. Mm-hmm. What it actually all means, though, in the end is you take the points, add them up, and you're looking at the class one through five. And basically one through three, so class one means that you have a mortality risk of 0.1%. Two is 0.6, three is 0.9. And so the first three classes, we feel pretty confident that we can treat the patient in an outpatient setting, give them oral antibiotics, and they're going to be okay. Very low mortality risk. And so it's something that you know we're, we're not as worried about the outcomes. However, when you go up to class four, which is basically 91 points to 130 points, you automatically jump from that 0.9 at class three to 9.3 for class four. So 9.3% mm -hmm. mortality rate. That's so interesting because imagine, like if I was looking at this as a patient and I saw that I was at 90 and all I would need, like, like what if I was at 90 and then my birthday's tomorrow? Oh, they, I would, I that would bump it. me up 10% in no, my chance of death. No way. And I'm going home. Not tomorrow. I'm walking home. I'd be like, let's roll. Let's but go. tomorrow I'm in the hospital. Tomorrow I'm in the hospital. That's why these things are funny sometimes. The thing but, is, is you got to live for today. That's right. the moral of the story. But if I'm treating this guy, hopefully I'm realizing that, yeah, he's right on the precipice. Maybe I'm a little more cautious. Yeah. Depends on how busy you are today. Did you check his date of birth? We don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, so... Class four is 9.3% mortality, and class five, 
27% of a mortality risk. There's more than a one in four chance. Yes. Not great odds. And so four and five, if uh, based on the uh, PSI, you are going to consider them and probably most likely going to admit them for inpatient care, get them on IV antibiotics, and then get them stable and then go ahead and discharge after that and let them finish their course at home most likely. But um, big jump in that risk of, of mortality. Yes, that's definitely a handy way to kind of make a determination as to how, where you can treat this patient. Um, there's a less preferred option um, to the PSI, which is a little bit shorter called the CURB-65. Um, CURB is a um, handy acronym, but they're looking at um, whether the patient is confused. They'll look and see if the urea is over 19. Um, if their respiratory rate is greater than 30 breaths per minute, they'll look at their blood pressure. If it's really low, below 90 over 60, um, and then their age, if it's over 65, they would get one point for each of those. Um, and then for each of those, as the points increase, so does your risk of death within 30 days. Um, and I believe with, um, if you have two points, it's kind of, you could do inpatient or outpatient. Anything below that is fine to go outpatient. Anything above two, you want to be inpatient. Um, but I, you can kind of see it's definitely simplified and you could see why the PSI might be more preferred and maybe a little bit more sensitive. Yeah. And the, the guidelines do mention both sets of, you know, calculations, but they do prefer the PSI, like very specifically. Uh, I think the uh, Johns Hopkins does as well. Um, so the, once you've kind of established where you're going to be treating the patient, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, the next thing is if, if you do need to go the inpatient route, then the next kind of thing to look at is how severe is their community-acquired pneumonia. So we have another kind of... Uh, criteria or scorecard, if you will, um, but it's made up of various minor criteria and then two major criteria. And so the major criteria, and, and basically if the patient has either of these major criteria, they automatically are considered to have severe community-acquired pneumonia, mm -hmm. which it, when you see these, you'll, you'll be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So cr major criteria, um, first one being septic shock with need for vasopressors. Not, yeah, definitely yeah. doesn't seem like a good candidate for going home. Nope. Um, respiratory failure uh, requiring uh, mechanical ventilation. Yeah. Also not a good candidate for Unless going home. Unless that's one of those, you know, vents that you can drive around on the sidewalk. Mm. You're not going home. They have those? No. Oh, okay. Right on. Just kid, Just curious. I was wondering why we don't have one here. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so either of those, if the patient has either one of those conditions, they're automatically considered severe. If they uh, have three or more of any of the minor criteria, and I'll just name a few, so things like respiratory rate of uh, 30 breaths per minute or more, um, things like confusion or disorientation, um, if they have a uh, BUN level of greater than or equal to 20, uh, leukopenia, um, so that's white blood cell count less than 4,000. Uh, however, that needs to be from infection alone. They can't be on like some kind of like chemotherapy agent or something like that. That would, you know, where we know why the patient has leukopenia. Um, any thrombocytopenia where their platelet count falls below 100,000. Um, hyperthermia where the core temperature is less than 36 degrees Celsius. Uh, hypotension requiring fluid resuscitation. Any of those types of things, and there's others as well. Uh, three or more, then they also are considered to have severe pneumonia. And um, most likely, if they are severe, we probably will start them off in the ICU. So, would this be an alternative to the other two, or do you do this? You do this separate. So, this is like considering once the patient is going inpatient, um, you know, and you do need to kind of figure out which. I which floor to put them okay. on whether so like if you look at like curb 65 mm -hmm. they basically say inpatient plus or minus icu i see which so is, to clarify does this person yeah. need to be in the icu because they're that severe you have another thing to do math I with it. i get it yeah it's a lot so of work it is a lot of work <laughs> so now we've decided whether we're treating outpatient or inpatient and then if it is inpatient we're treating whether we're putting them in a regular you know adult floor or icu for a closer monitoring then we also have to establish, have they had any sort of um, prior respiratory isolation of MRSA or pseudomonas? Because that's going to change up how we how we treat the patient. Yeah, what drugs we use, yeah. And then uh, recent hospitalization, um, and like I said earlier, with, uh, with sputum cultures and all that, if, if they've had a recent hospitalization within the last 90 days where they received parenteral antibiotics, definitely a, a warning sign for... Um, possibly MRSA or pseudomonas. Right. Um, Another one where it's just a consideration as opposed to them just being considered having HCAP. Yeah. So some comorbidities that can 
lead to worse outcomes with cap would be any kind of like chronic heart, lung, liver, renal disease, you know, whether it's heart failure, COPD from the lung standpoint, um, cirrhosis or, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease from the liver, CKD, obviously from the kidneys. Um, and then, uh, diabetes also puts a patient at risk. Alcoholism kind of leading back to the liver, um, active malignancy, and then uh, functional or anatomical asplenia also makes them considered to be a little bit more immunocompromised, obviously. And so the, we're thinking maybe a little bit more intensive, a little bit more broad-spectrum therapy, especially from an empiric standpoint, to make sure that we're covering uh, all of our bases and giving them the best chance to recover and not have any sort of uh, negative outcome. Right. So let's say that they are outpatient. It's a walking pneumonia, right? They don't have any of those risk factors as far as MRSA, pseudomonas, uh, comorbidities, um, parental antibiotic use, hospitalizations, or anything like that. It's just standard, straight community-acquired pneumonia. What can we treat them with? So we're going based on this new-ish um, 2019 IDSA guideline, um, which truthfully makes things a little bit easier, which I kind of like, but um, you can just go with high-dose amoxicillin if you want to. Just that. Um, one gram three times a day. Uh, if they have an amoxicillin um, allergy uh, that's severe and you couldn't use a, um, an alternative to that, you could use doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day. Um, that the, Those are kind of their two um, go-to options. You can also use a macrolide, they say, um, but it needs to be in a place where you know that macrolide resistance is less than 25% because resistance to macrolides is very high all across the country. In that case, you could use azithromycin or clarithromycin. Um, that seems to like not be the case a lot of the times. Most of the time, if you look at your antibiogram, it's going to be above 25%. Um, but they say you could use amoxicillin or doxycycline. So I'll just go ahead and say how that differs from kind of the old way. And even if you look it up to date, they would disagree with that. And they would say, so with amoxicillin and doxycycline, you're getting that gram positive and negative coverage, um, but they are still concerned about atypical coverage. And so that's where the, um, the macrolide in addition to the beta lactam would come into play is to get that gram uh, or to get that atypical coverage. So they would say, we still think that you need that, even though the data is not really super strong. They would say just to play it safe, that's what they would want to do. IDSA says there's a lot of resistance. We don't want the resistance rates to continue to grow. So it's okay to start with just the beta-lactam or the doxycycline, get the gram positive and negative, and they're probably going to be okay. And the thing to kind of keep in mind, too, because when we think of moxicillin by itself, we're typically thinking more the the strep coverage. We're not really thinking as much of the gram negative. So we think 30 to 40% of H flu um, probably is going to be, you know, kind of uh, resistant. And we're also not going to get the atypical coverage like Cole was saying. So um, if you're pretty confident it's probably strep pneumo, then, you know, that would be fine to use the amoxicillin. Now, I personally, one gram three times a day, Sounds like too much diarrhea to deal with. I'm not, I don't know if I'm if I'm down with that. I, doxy can tear your stomach up too, but it, I feel like less than a gram. I don't. Yeah, that seems seems a like lot. a lot. Doxy, however, um, now if we're kind of thinking the other way, that we're going to get the um, gram negative coverage. We're also getting the atypical coverage as well as the uh, as Legionella is one of those as well. Um, now, strep pneumo can be kind of hit or miss with doxy, but. In the, again, in the case of no comorbidities, it can be uh, it can be used first line even without an additional combo macrolide. Um, and then, like Cole said, the macrolides only if you can verify for sure that the uh, resistance rates are less than twenty five percent. I'll have to say I have to say that even after this guideline came out, I don't think I really just didn't not see amoxicillin one gram three times a day very often. I can't even think of maybe a couple instances where it did. It seemed like most people were still using Augmentin. Mm-hmm. was still the most common. Um, but yeah, this is what IDSA is recommending now. And, and you know, Augmentin is definitely still a player. So, you know, if you have outpatient treatment um, and the patient has any of those comorbidities that we listed, which there's obviously several options there for having comorbidities, including diabetes, very common, thing, you know, things like that, CKD, um, then you know, we know that those patients are going to have potentially a little, not immunocompromised, but just possibly not as Increased healthy. Increased for poor outcomes. Of, right? uh, yeah, not, their immune systems are not quite 100%. So um, it's something that we get a little bit more broad spectrum. And that's where the augmentin really still comes into play with those comorbidities. 
Um, and I do like that they, they give at least uh, Johns Hopkins does. And then also I think they uh, um, got the infectious disease guidelines do as well. But they give just two um, recommendations for cephalosporin. So they got the uh, third generation cefpodoxime and then the second generation uh, cefiroxime, which we know obviously is going to have that strep pneumo coverage as well as the gram negative coverage like H flu, MCAT, those types of respiratory gram negatives that we're worried about. Um, the difference here is, and Cole did, I think Cole mentioned this already, but that's those are more broad spectrum, yes, but you're also adding in either the macrolide or doxy in addition as a combo. So got to make sure that we use both drugs if they have comorbidities. Right. The only time we're using single agent is if they are 100% healthy and don't have any other comorbidities. Um, the if you do want a single you know monotherapy option for a patient who has um, outpatient setting, but does have comorbidities, then we have to go with a respiratory fluoroquinolone. So levofloxacin and moxifloxacin are our two typical go-tos for respiratory fluoroquinolones. Um, gemofloxacin is also uh, considered a respiratory fluoroquinolone. However, at least the last time I checked, it's quite expensive. So Yeah, and um, the other, the combo would definitely be preferred for reasons of side effects and resistance absolutely. For, to the fluoroquinolones. If you guys don't remember, fluoroquinolones cause all of the black box warnings ever created. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's pretty sure that's accurate. So, um, you want to just kind of go through some touch on some stuff with these antibiotics? Yeah, sure. So, you know, obviously with amoxicillin, um, the, the especially high doses like that, which you know makes sense. We we want to make sure that we're doing uh, higher doses in you know every eight hours so that we can kind of keep that um, concentration, the plasma concentration above the MIC because it's a time dependent antibiotic. But uh, when you're using high doses like that, GI upset is always in diarrhea, especially is always a a concern. And then when we go augmenting, you know, we were definitely uh, are, are thinking that the person's going to have some GI distress. Um, the other thing to consider is if uh, the patient's creatinine clearance is less than 30. Uh, typically, we try to avoid amoxicillin doses um, that are 875 or more. So that's going to probably change up how you're how you're treating these patients or force you to kind of go the doxycycline route. Uh, but uh, renal function is something to kind of keep in mind. Um, same thing with uh, cephalosporins as far as side effects go. Usually it's GI upset. Um, rashes and things like that can be pretty common because allergies to penicillins and cephalosporins are fairly common. Um, but that being said, if a patient has an allergy to a penicillin, um, they have a very low chance of being you know, also allergic or having cross sensitivity to a cephalosporin. That's one of those things that because they're all considered beta lactam, you know, that we just automatically assume there's going to be cross sensitivity. The computer will flag it as if there is, but really it's the only documented cross sensitivity reactions that we have are the cephalosporins that have the exact same like R group or side chain as it's, um, amoxicillin or um, ampicillin, counterpart and so if it doesn't have that same identical side chain they're they're probably not going to be allergic so the textbook answer is like less than 10 percent cross sensitivity but it's probably a lot lower than that in most cases right and i'm sure the level of concern you'd have about it would be based on the reaction that they had to the penicillin if it's you know a rash then even you know just up to date it's going to say go for it if it's severe anaphylaxis or something maybe a little more hesitant or careful yeah but still very unlikely either way um, so we have the macrolides as well, which, like we said, covers those atypicals that you would want to make sure you hit, but it also covers strep pneumo, um, H flu, um, but resistance is high, like we said. Um, concerns about them would be QTC prolongation for sure. Um, there's azithromycin and clarithromycin are going to be the most common. Um, there's also erythromycin, but it's probably the worst for side effects as far as QTC prolongation goes and GI upset goes. Um uh, yeah, you can even have issues with taste. You can have skin reactions. Um, but, I mean, in general, they're pretty well tolerated because Z-Packs have been thrown around forever for pneumonia. Um, but resistance is high. Um, and they do have some drug interactions. So they're substrates of 3A4 and 3A4 inhibitors. Um, but azithromycin, at least urethromycin and clarithromycin are. Azithromycin has less drug interactions than the other two. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the azithromycin, though, still, like, comes up on the computer whether you're working at a clinic or a retail pharmacy um, it still pops up as all these drug drug interactions know that most of those that they're documenting are with clarithromycin or erythromycin right so azithromycin they are doing that because it's the same class but most likely you're going to be a, a lot safer off with that one right 
Um, doxycycline, obviously the GI upset's still a concern, so making sure the patients take it with food. Um, and then uh, it can cause some photosensitivity. So if you have a patient that's got more fair skin or, or porcelain skin, if you will, <laughs> then uh, make sure they wear some sunscreen, especially if you're around this, you know, nice blazing hot summer like we have here in Charleston. Um, and then uh, make sure that if the patient is on any kind of like a multivalent cation, so, you know, taking calcium over the counter or taking uh, Tums or any kind of like Mylanta or antacid like that, um, anything that basically has magnesium aluminum, anything like that in it, we need to um, separate either two hours before or six hours after uh, because it can cause uh, the the multivalent cations can chelate to the um, the actual antibiotic, the doxycycline inhibit absorption. And if it's not absorbed, it's not going to be doing too much good in your body. And then fluoroquinolones. Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. <laughs> and then fluoroquinolones. So um, we you know, we've talked about our concerns about those many times, but they're used a lot and they have their place. Um, but there's ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin, uh, moxifloxacin, and gemifloxacin. Um, the levofloxacin, moxifloxacin, and gemifloxacin, like Mike said, are considered respiratory fluoroquinolones. Um, not necessarily because of the place that they, it's not like they permeate the lungs better or anything like that. They have coverage for um, some bugs that you typically see in the lungs, like strep pneumo, and they also have a typical coverage. Um, so you wouldn't want to use Cipro in that instance. Um, but only a couple of them have um, Pseudomonas coverage and other better gram-negative coverage, and that would be Levofloxacin and Ciprofloxacin. So that's a good thing to keep in mind. But as far as side effects, they have a black box warning for tendon inflammation and rupture, also peripheral neuropathy that can last for a long time after being off the meds, um, increased risk for seizures, and toxic psychosis. So not great. Um, but they also have the GI upset. They have QTC prolongation, just like the macrolides with moxifloxacin being the worst. Um, they can affect glucose by either causing hypo or hyperglycemia, um, photosensitivity, uh, other skin reactions, that sort of thing. Good kind old of, fluoroquinolones. They're kind of dirty. Kind of dirty. All right. So that's outpatient and some of the drugs we use in the outpatient setting. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about inpatient. And so this is still going to be, it is inpatient, but it's not severe. So we're not in like an ICU situation. Uh, you know, we're in like a regular um, internal medicine floor. And the, the big difference is you're treating with the same type of antibiotics, basically, same coverage, same spectrum for the most part, except it's going to be the IV formulations. So the, the ones that uh, are typically listed, you know, ampicillin, sulfbactam, instead of the augmentin, um, the uh, cefotaxime, ceftriaxone, and then ceftaroline was also listed in like the uh, Johns Hopkins, and I believe even the um, infectious disease guidelines. I have to double check myself on that. Ceftaroline, with it being one of the only cephalosporins that covers MRSA, um, I'd be surprised that, to see how many places actually have that on formulary. I feel like that would be something yeah. they would hold off on, but maybe. Um, now, if uh, if once you have one of your beta-lactam kind of base picked out, then you're also going to add a, a macrolide. Um, it's either azithromycin or clorithromycin. You could also consider doxy in this case if there's a contraindication to a macrolide. And then again, monotherapy, you do have the option of a respiratory fluoroquinolone, moxie or levo, but uh, a lot of times we're going to go with the two-drug combo so we can avoid those adverse effects with fluoroquinolones. Yep. So same concept as before. It's just a matter of uh, making sure we're using IV drugs. Right. Different options. Um, it's, so this is still inpatient, non-ICU, non-severe, but you're concerned for either MRSA or pseudomonas. So with MRSA, you'd want to add on bank um, or linazolid. Uh, you want to check. You can check nasal carriage cultures to de-escalate after that as well, um, but that's what you'd want to do if there's um, concern for MRSA. I believe they have a pretty high sensitivity for negative results. So if it is negative, then you know that it's probably not going to be MRSA. Right. Now, this, I will say, this might be an option just if you didn't want to have to use multiple drugs, then this would be an option maybe where ceftaroline could come mm. into play because it will have the MRSA coverage, but then you can't really de-escalate it. That was the problem. Right. But it would save you from having to add on Vank or linazolid. Right. So, I don't know. Just food for thought. It's good food. Good Delicious. Thought. Pizza and sushi. Uh, Pseudomonas. Um, Just throw out my favorite foods. <laughs> in case you guys are wondering. Chinese. That's yeah, definitely my favorite. Jap Japanese. I'm definitely more of a Japanese food guy. I do guy. like bocce. I can do that. <sighs> Every day. Oof. 
Anyway, sorry, guys. Um, I'm hungry. So, yeah, Pseudomonas history. If they're treated with a beta-lactam, you may substitute with uh, Zosin, which is Piptazo, Piperacil, and Tazobactam. Um, there's also Cefepime, Ceftazidime. Um, you can do uh, Imipenem, Celastin combination, Miropenem, or Astrianam. Um, if they're treated with a fluoroquinolone, um, add one of the above and obtain cultures so you could de-escalate if you needed to. Yeah. So I, the way I kind of think about this is I'm adding the vancan linazolid, you know, because I'm, I need to cover the MRSA. With Pseudomonas, if I'm already picking one of the beta-lactams, I can probably just replace it. So it's a little bit easier. I'm just picking one with more broad spectrum. And then once the cultures come back, show that it's not Pseudomonas, then I'm de-escalating back to whatever the original right. choice was. Right. So I like I like that option and then mix it up with the macrolide, cover all your bases, good to go. So uh, ceftazidine, and for some reason, that's something that's always like I've just always stuck in my head because ceftazidime, like dime, is a ten or whatever, and it's like the best. And so every time I've ever seen that, I go cover pseudomonas. Like ever <laughs> since pharmacy school, like whenever we do infectious disease, the second year or whatever, um, I've always kind of that's always kind of stuck with me. Now we do have ceftazidime that is in combination with a beta lactamase inhibitor like uh, avibactam, um, so like avicaz, but that's probably going to be better off kind of being reserved for like multi-drug resistant pseudomonas mm-hmm. um, or other multi-drug resistant gram-negative bugs. And so that, in you know, is an option, but it's probably best, you know, if it comes, cultures come back and it is pseudomonas and it's also resistant, then maybe we can whip out the Abacaz if that's an option. But um, probably ceftazidine by itself is a little bit more realistic and cheaper. Um, cefepime is something that, uh, is a really good, especially when we start talking about, or next time we talk about nosocomial pneumonia, cefepime is a good kind of empiric therapy because it's super broad spectrum and it covers a lot of our nasty bugs. So like our, uh, not just pseudomonas, but also like citrobacter, cinobacter, uh, and you know, it's, this has a really solid kind of, uh, broad spectrum. Um, we've already talked about side effects and things with, with those. Our carbapenems, remember that, uh, you know, imipenem and baripenem are the two they recommend, but uh, ertapenem, if you are going to use a uh, carbapenem to cover pseudomonas, stay away from ertapenem, no pseudomonas coverage. It's a classic, like, boards question that they always ask yep. them, like the naplex and pants and all those other fun exams people have to take. Um, and there's... Uh, no coverage of atypical pathogens with these either. So even though they are more broad spectrum, they're not covering atypicals. They're not really covering MRSA, um, not covering uh, VRE. And so, yeah, so it's good for the pseudomonas coverage and some of that, but still has its limits. Um, the one thing I will say about carbapenems is that they can uh, potentially decrease concentrations of valproic acid or, or divalproex. Uh, so if a patient is on that for epilepsy, you know, which we have much better drugs for epilepsy nowadays, but just in case, um, the other thing to consider is if they're using it as a mood stabilizer. The last thing mm-hmm. you want to do is uh, cause them to have a right. manic episode or something while they're also being treated for pneumonia. That wouldn't yep. be ideal. And then um, a patient who is already kind of at risk for seizures. Um, you know, we got to kind of watch out with carbapenems because it can lower the, the seizure threshold, especially with um, the patients with impaired renal function, um, with imipenem especially, that can uh, be a really high risk and something we need to monitor for. Yeah. And I mentioned Astrianam too. So Astrianam um, would have really good gram-negative coverage, has pseudomonas coverage, um, but no gram-positive and no anaerobic activity. And it can be used if a patient has a penicillin allergy, even though its mechanism of action is similar to penicillins. That doesn't matter. Um, but it's it, it comes as IV. can also be inhaled for patients with cystic fibrosis, interestingly. Um, but yeah, not not as significant side effects as like carbapenems or something like that. Just kind of nonspecific GI upset, and you'd want to monitor liver function tests and that sort of thing. And uh, Vanco, remember ototoxicity, nephrotoxicity, mm-hmm. and then, uh, of course, our, our Red Man Syndrome um, or uh, infusion reactions. I think there's word in the street is they're changing Red Man Syndrome to not be called that anymore. Mm. Um, they said it's culturally insensitive, which, you know, it makes sense, I guess. I never thought about it like that, but after they said it, I was like, oh, that is probably a little <laughs> a little bit. Oops, sorry about that. Um, and then uh, for monitoring, obviously looking at renal function and uh, making those ad- dose adjustments if needed if a patient has CKD, um, limiting the use of any other nephrotoxic drugs, and you know we want to cut down on any kind of stress we can put on the kidneys if possible. 
Um, and then with linazolid, uh, a little bit of a different drug, even though it's got a lot of the same kind of coverage you know, spectrum, um, it works differently, and it's something that we don't have to worry about nearly as bad with uh like like drawing labs and kind of monitoring levels and things like that. Linazole is a little bit easier. Um, we do have to kind of at least be aware that it can decrease platelets, hemoglobin levels, and white blood cell counts. Um, and then also it can actually increase serotonin levels um, as well as blood mm-hmm. pressure. So if you're using it uh, with an androgenic drug um, or a drug that affects the androgenic system or a- activates those alpha receptors or whatever the case may be, you got to worry about increasing blood pressure when you add on linazolid to it as well. Um, so same kind of coverage as far as MRSA. Um, it does also cover VRE. So if you can't use VANC in that case, you can always consider linazolid. Yep. Yep. So then uh, if they're more severe and their patients who are in the ICU, it does change up a little bit. Um, so you'd want to use a anti-pneumococcal beta-lactam plus a macrolide, azithromycin or clothromycin. So the beta-lactam options would be cefotaxime, ceftriaxone, or ampicillin sulbactam. So you'd want to use both those together. Or use one of those anti-pneumococcal beta-lactams plus a fluoroquinolone. Um, is this the only time you combo something with fluoroquinolone for, with a fluoroquinolone, or did you do that before as well? No, I believe that's the only time. Yeah. Which, to me, that makes sense because ICU, obviously, we're going to be more at risk for developing a nosocomial pneumonia. Right. And so the last thing you'd want to do is have them be on treatment and then also they get a nosocomial from a different bug, yep. maybe pseudomonas. And then I, I, to me, it seems like it'd be more, a um, little bit of a better option to have um, a respiratory fluoroquinolone that covers pseudomonas, um, like levofloxacin. They say moxie or levo, because again, they're not thinking along those lines, but um, you're covering uh, with levo, you kind of are covering that just in case they did obtain some kind of pseudomonas infection. Right. And then similar to before, if you have concerns with MRSA, add vanc or linazolid. If you have concerns about pseudomonas, add what we've mentioned that covers pseudomonas, zosin, cefepime, uh, miropenem, those sorts of things. Yeah. So if a patient has viral um, community-acquired pneumonia, so typically going to be uh, influenza is a big causative pathogen. Um, Olsatamivir is typically the go-to antiviral, uh, anti uh, um, anti-flu, anti-influenza medication in this in this patient population. Um, we also still have on the market like um, Zanamivir, uh, Relenza, that inhaler, rarely used in uh, this patient population. Um, John Hopkins did mention, though, that it could be potentially useful uh, in patients that have Olsatamivir-resistant strains mm. of influenza. So it may st- possibly still be used. And then we also have... Um, Perimavir, which is a uh, IV formulation of a neuraminidase inhibitor, um, it's often used off-label for patients in this particular situation, if, especially if they have like a lack of GI absorption um, or if they've experienced septic shock, um, then that could be a better option where you can give it IV instead of orally. And then uh, Zofluza, um, no current recommendations for like severe influenza, hospitalized, pneumonia type of thing. But, um, you know, it's still got some time on its patent, I believe. So wouldn't surprise me if we see some more stuff coming out with that one and they start trying to look at this for an option in, um, inpatient being treated for a cap as well. Yeah, I was seeing it used some outpatient, not nearly as much as Tamiflu, but I think people like it because you don't have to take it nearly as much. I think mm-hmm. it's just like one dose, right? Something like that. Something like that. But it's not like the twice-a-day yeah, yeah. Tamiflu Um like Tamiflu is, but they're generally pretty well tolerated. Um, you can have some like psychiatric side effects. Those aren't super common. Um, you can have some GI side effects, but not nearly as common as with like the beta lactams. Um, so you'd want to take it with food to uh, prevent that, but otherwise they're, they're very well tolerated. Um, with Tamiflu, it's 75 milligrams twice daily for five days for the adult dose. Um, it is renally cleared. So if they have a creatinine clearance less than 30, you'd want to decrease that to once a day. Uh, but it needs to be used within 48 hours of symptom onset or it's not going to do anything ultimately. Yeah. It's not going to decrease their, their sick days. So you mentioned that up to date, maybe had some, they wanted to throw some, uh, some shade, yeah. these new guidelines mm-hmm. do tell. Uh, well, yeah, they just don't necessarily agree with the, um, more moderate approach to the kind of basic, cap with the amoxicillin one gram twice a day they pretty much always want to have a typical coverage they're okay with the amoxicillin but they want the macrolide as well and you know they they said uh, there's not great data either way i think they just want to play it safe whereas you know it's idsa's job to 
decrease antibiotic resistance, I'm sure. So, yeah. So kind of take that. We we just report and you decide. We can just tell you. And I don't like You guys like can it. decide what's right. <laughs> I was telling you what I decided. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess time will tell if people just don't have as good outcomes with the, you know, lesser strategy, then maybe they'll switch it up. But from what we can tell, it looks like it's just as good. I always had that realization when I'm thinking about something like that. I'm like, I don't agree with that. And I'm like, who do I think I am? <laughs> like, I, like I have any business disagreeing with the people who write articles for up to date. I mean, I still don't agree with them, but I just think it's in my own head. I'm like, oh, that's and there's also, um, you know, there's also a debate around how long to treat for kind of a, a simple pneumonia, if you want to call it that way, a non-complicated cap. Um, and five days is recommended in a lot of places, but they've done studies looking at less than seven days, greater than seven days, or seven days itself. Um, it seems like five days is an okay place to start, but they want to see that they're fever-free for, you know, 48 hours or whatever. And if they're not, then you can continue treatment. Um, but like symptoms like a, a persistent cough or something like that is not necessarily reason to continue uh, to treat them. What else we got? Talk about some vaccine real quick. Oh yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So we got a new pneumonia vaccine hitting the market. Yeah. Mm. And then they came up with an amazing new and just crazy out of nowhere name. It's called Prevnar 20. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Pfizer. And it was Pfizer. They've been busy the last year. Yeah. Huh? I'm surprised they got this thing squeaked out with all the stuff they've got going on. And Merck's got one coming out that's like a, saw. a 15 serotype. And I'm like, oh. I saw. And it does. It looks like it's actually less promising than Pfizer's. That's, that's rough. I First know. Genuvia, now this. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they're going to make it. Oh, but they've on. got um, they've got something else. One of, one of the other big vaccines, though, what? right? Zostavax, they had the one they took off. The Are market. they not Shingrix? They're no, not. No. Oh, okay, never mind. No, that's GSK. Oh, it's GSK. Yeah, Merck's got Dude, Merck. <laughs> Merck, what are you doing? Poor Merck. They were like, they were probably so excited. This, this is exactly how I went down. They were like, guys, we got a new conjugate vaccine coming out. We got 15 serotypes, and they all looked up at the TV and it was like, Pfizer announced their 20 serotypes. I serotype. think they have. A, maybe they have a Tdap. They must. They must have a version of Tdap that sells. Adacel is that them? I swear I remember. Or Boostrix. I, th- I thought they were Boostrix. I thought Boostrix was GSK too. Maybe so. I don't freaking I know. swear I remember writing. I also don't order vaccines ever. So I remember I no writing Merck's name down a fair amount. That, Probably because you did Zoster. That was back in your Zoster I never days. did. That was, I was before. That was, post, that was after me. Gosh. Yeah. yeah me too. Not that it matters. Me at also. All. Me and Cole are the same age in case you guys are wondering. <laughs> we're both in our 20s and we're super young and vibrant. <laughs> so that's good. That's good fun. So. Um, Cole, have you read up on these uh, the new vaccines? Full, I will, full disclosure, Cole and I, it's been on our to do list, but we haven't fully kind of analyzed the data. So yeah, so I, just a lot of the stuff I was looking at, it, it seemed like they were looking a lot more at um, comparable immunogenicity versus the Prevnar twenty and like the Prevnar thirteen, just to see if they were getting the same results with the serotypes that Prevnar thirteen already has, and if they were getting also um, immunogenicity with the additional serotypes and it looked like they did it was non-inferior as far as the 13 serotypes that Prevnar 13 has but then they also got um, um, some extra coverage with the additional seven though I think there was one of the seven that was like not maybe non-inferior to placebo that was a little less than great but in general it seems like it's going to be better than Prevnar 13 whether it's like groundbreaking yeah you know we'll see and remember when Prevnar 13 was so quote-unquote groundbreaking you know because of the uh the amazing data from Capita where they reported 46% efficacy against right. pneumococcal pneumonia and then 75 against invasive pneumonia. So I need, yeah, I need to dig into what clinical yeah. data. Um, I'm excited to see if they pulled yeah. another one. If I see one relative risk reduction, that's it. I'm going to be <laughs> so mad. I'm calling them up. <laughs> now, um, but it is something to consider. And, and the other thing I'll throw in here just real quick too, because Pneumovax 23 is still uh, on the market. Now, Whether it'll be interesting to see how the ACIP and CDC kind of change the recommendations or how they how they change them my guess is either it'll just replace prevnar 13 in the recommendations or maybe even both vaccines who knows but um with the polysaccharide vaccine you know you're getting this kind of um outer coat of the the you know the sugar molecules that are make up the bacteria's surface capsule um with a real bacteria when a when an antigen presenting cell kind of engulfs that whether it's a b cell or a dendritic cell macrophage whatever um you're engulfing that and you have all this you know in, internal 
workings of the bacteria that it, uh, it can kind of present on its cell surface uh, and, and have that T cell activation and you get like that good solid immune response. Um, with the polysaccharide vaccine, it's just that outer kind of capsule. So you're not going to get anything that really those B lymphocytes can, uh, or B cells rather, um, can can kind of put on their cell surface to to stimulate those that T helper cell response. So sometimes you'll see them referred to as like T cell independent because really all we're getting is kind of just multiple um, plasma cells, which are like activated B cells that are kind of, you know, carrying those, those antibodies. So they're kind of hunting, uh, not even hunting, but they just kind of have a better chance of bumping into a strep, you know, pneumobacteria because there's more of them now. But you're not going to get the T cell activation conjugate vaccine takes that same polysaccharide kind of outer capsule, but it conjugates some sort of a carrier protein. So in the case of Prevnar 13 and 20, they use diphtheria carrier proteins. And so what happens is when the B cell kind of pulls it in and breaks it all up, those carrier proteins are what bind to that MHC2, and that's what presents in the cell surface, activates T cells. So then not only are you getting the uh, antibody, you know, kind of presence with those plasma cells, but you're also getting um, those T cells activated with memory B cells and all this other stuff. So you're going to get a much better immune response, uh, especially like in uh, infants and things. We don't usually use polysaccharide vaccines until a kid is at least two. And so you're just going to get a much more uh, immunogenetic response um, when it comes to a polysaccharide vaccine. So it's good that we have one that has a little bit more serotypes now. It'd be interesting to see how the, the surveillance data kind of plays out once it's on the market. But We'll kind of see. It's interesting. Yep. And then we'll see what happens with Merck. Poor Merck. <laughs> Merck. Merck. Their name. <laughs> it doesn't even... <laughs> Why do we care about outcomes? I know. Um, anything else today, Cole? That's all I got, man. So one more time, I'll give a shout out. I hope you guys don't mind me selling a little bit here. But um, like I said, I just really appreciate um, Pearls. And uh, the, if you haven't checked out their app, make sure you just give it a little look. Um, and then uh, it's, it's pyrls.com slash core consult rx. And, um, you know, we can... Uh, you you can download the free charts and then you know if you don't if it's not something for you then you can go ahead and cancel and um old derek that invented uh pearls will will be understanding he's a very very nice guy but at least check it out he put a lot of work into it and then um supported us with the podcast so um definitely give it a shot and then um you know if you guys have any questions for us personally um, reach out to us over email or any of the social media platforms um you can get in touch with us via text which at 415-943-6116 i have like five texts right now pending so i'm sorry for you guys uh i promise i'll get to you i've just been real busy and um you know if you have any questions comments ideas for episodes definitely uh, let us know um if you know anybody be a great guest let us know even if it's you we, you can humble brag it's cool and um yeah thank you guys so much we also hit a ton of i think we're hit the 300 mark for reviews on itunes oh nice so thank you guys for doing that if you do like the podcast uh, make sure you leave us a review that helps us out a ton in the ratings and kind of where we show up in the search so um thank you guys so much i really appreciate it have a great night. We'll see you next time.